0: is so inherently frustrating that we consistently take human behavior, human responses, human emotions, and call it a disorder. Seeing someone who has been dealing with pain, these these behaviors, most of their life, and then seeing change within a month, within two months, within three months looking back and going, I would not have reacted this way a year ago. I would not have reacted this way six months ago. It's it's so, it's so incredible. It is so genuinely incredible.
1: Bianca McIntyre is a therapist who not only has personal experience with BPD, but also dedicates her work to helping patients with personality disorders. She focuses on challenging some really long held beliefs about the treatment of personality disorders And she advocates for a more compassionate and validating approach that puts the human element front and center. Many people with BPD face stigma directly from mental health professionals. And people like Bianca aim to change the narrative that's forced on us. The idea that people with BPD can't be helped. If you struggle with feeling like a monster, or if you often wonder if you're broken, this interview is a must-listen. Let's get into it not silent. Bianca is a therapist with BPD. She lives in Australia. Uh, where in Australia do you live again?
0: So I'm in Queensland, I'm in Brisbane.
1: Love. So, so and- Super hot all the time. What is your story, Bianca? Like, what is your origin story? If you if you call it that, mm-hmm. you know, like, we can start okay. anywhere rattle in off. life. You can start from birth, be like, my mom, in this year, like I burst out of the womb and onto the dance floor and here I am now. <laughs> well, or you could start from like just a couple of years ago, it doesn't matter.
0: As my mom likes to tell the story, um, I was born on the coldest day of the year in South Africa on the 11th of July, which is like the dead of winter in South Africa. Um, so she likes saying that. She likes saying that when I was born, I was thrust upon this world on the coldest day of the year, which is probably why I like the cold so much, more so than the heat. Okay. Hmm. Um, So I predominantly, I grew up in South Africa. I lived there my whole childhood until I was about 18, 19. And then I wanted to be a famous actress um, and the easiest English speaking country at the time to get into, this was like 15 years ago, was Australia. Currently the hardest country to do anything in. So at one point I went to Hollywood I would have been like 21 and i like telling a lot of my clients the story because my clients are very often in the age bracket between like 19 and 30s um and i vividly remember i was 21 22 and i was in la and i was convinced that my life was over i was 22 years old i was so old i was so old and i had achieved nothing (laughs) And I have nothing to show <laughs> for being 22 years old. And I vividly remember that headspace. And it happens. It's like in your, the transition period between in your 20s, there's a lot. There's a lot of transitioning and there's a lot of existential crisising.
1: When did you become a therapist?
0: Um, about three years ago now. I finished my degree. I finished my master's in probably four years ago now. I'm very bad at time, Um, but I remember it was before COVID, and then during COVID, I had no choice but to just set up my practice. Like, it was actually a really um, productive time for me because um, when COVID started, I don't know how much you know about Australian stuff that happened during that time, um, but I lived, I moved to Melbourne, so it was the most lockdown city. So when COVID started, the first lockdown was 111 days. So you were not allowed to leave a five kilometer radius of your house and you were only allowed to do it for an hour at a time, hour a day. I had no other choice but to just buckle down and start stuff. Like I think that's when I jumped on TikTok like the rest of the world as well.
1: So your TikTok has a lot of growth Mm -hmm. and I wanted to bring you on to talk about, not necessarily your experience with TikTok, but the messaging that you have on there. You have a catchphrase that I really like. Which Um, one? (laughs) I know you you have a few, but the one that I really like is kind of your sign off where you remind us, like people with BPD, you are not a monster. Yeah. I really love that. Um, And I love the messaging and the tone that you bring to your TikTok with that. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that a little bit today.
0: Yeah. So first of all, thank you. Um, That makes me really happy to know that. I I do get quite a lot of messages specifically just on that, that I'm, no, you're not a monster. We're not monsters. Um, And the reason I guess I chose that is so I got diagnosed with BPD when I was around like 21, 22,
1: 23. So, so like existential crisis Oh, well,
0: Existential crisis era. I've been having existential crisis because remember, just because you're diagnosed at a time does not mean you didn't have BPD up until that point. Oh,
1: I know. And it doesn't just come not. out of nowhere.
0: 100%. And yep. we'll talk about that later, but that's why diagnoses, sure. mm, you don't have it only when someone tells you you have it. But anyway. Exactly. I know. Yeah. I digress. So this was like 12, 13 years ago now, if not more, 13 years. Time isn't real. Time isn't real. Time is an illusion. Back then, there was none of this. There was not TikTok. There was not um, YouTube. There was not – well, we had YouTube, but we didn't have anything on BPD. We didn't have anything on – there was nothing. No. No, because Even-
1: like- – it was just like what that shoes video? <laughs> that like, was the only thing. Do you remember
0: That was our, that was our, our source of entertainment, just
1: shoes. yeah, it was just that. It wasn't like, "Hey, let's talk about your mental health, and I'm a clinical psychologist. It's more just people should posting like shows. you' like,,
0: look at this!" and Smash that, that
1: was huge That I was smash, oh my God,
0: Favorite. Anyway, sorry. um anyway, no, that's right. <laughs> um, but the the thing was that we no one knew about BPD really. And this is Mm -hmm. in South Africa. So this is South Africa is even like 50 years behind everyone else in medical terms, in any kind of progress terms. Um, So I'm in South Africa. I'm in a, at this point, I've been in and out of um, psych wards. So I spent so much time inside psych wards and being in and out of psych wards. At one point, my psychiatrist just looks at me and goes, have you heard of borderline personality disorder? And I was like, no, no, I have not.
1: <laughs> oh, my God.
0: And she goes, well, I think that's something that we need to start researching. And I was like, okay.
1: Damn. Well,
0: cool. <laughs> let's do that. And I don't know how um, psych wards work in Canada, and I'm not very familiar in Australia, but I'm getting more familiar. Um, but in South Africa, and the one that I was in, half the time was spent, you know, working on mindfulness and being by yourself. And then the other half was spent on education. So learning about your brain, learning about depression, learning about anxiety. We had to go to classwork to learn about things, to learn about what we were going through, which I very much attribute a lot of why I started wanting to become a psychologist, like really looking into. I actually at the start wanted to become a neuro psychologist. I wanted to be like, I love the brain. I wanted to look into brains doing what brains do. And I had to go, I went through so many psychologists. I went through so many psychiatrists because A, they didn't know what BPD was. Um, and B, they were trying to treat it with CBT, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And we now know that or it's not even that well-known, it's it's getting more well-known, that CBT can actually bring on the behaviours that create the stigma of BPD in the first place. For instance, if you go and see a regular psychologist who has no um, experience in BPD or PDs in general, personality disorders, and they try and tell you that you know, your thoughts are wrong and you need to change your thoughts. What is that? What is that feeling? Exactly. That just made a face, that feeling inside of you that goes, I know, I know. <clears throat> it's so just angry. It's this, you're not listening to me. You're not understanding me. I know that. And that feeling, that rage, brings on the behaviors that create a lot of the stigma for BPD. For instance, one of my very first psychs in the psych ward, because we had a psychologist and a psychiatrist that we had to see, because of me, he will probably never work with another BPD client ever again. Oh no. In the first session, I think it could have been the first or second session, um, because we were doing CBT and he was doing a very kind of um, tough love approach with CBT at someone with very, at the time, undiagnosed BPD, undiagnosed understanding of behavior. And I, it would it would have been the first or second session. It was very, very early on. He said something along the lines of your, your thoughts are wrong or something to do with, you know, your thoughts, your behaviors, whatever. I got so angry that I picked up a chair and I nearly threw it at him. I I picked it up and I looked and I saw the fear in his face and I just threw it down. And I said, you're not listening to me. And he shouted at me, he's get, like, get out of my office.
1: Oh my God.
0: And that experience to him probably has like solidified people with BPD are dangerous. Wow. People with BPD are bad clients. So that to me, I guess is is what I appreciate coming forward with more information because he was just doing what he was taught at the time. He was doing the best that he could with the information that he had. But in that sense, you know, you can't, if we take it to like a a physical sense, you can't get mad at a cancer patient when you give them insulin and it's not working and they get worse or they get angry at you because you're treating them with the incorrect medication. So I guess to transition into, you know, the things that are happening these days, the the fact that we have so much, so many more avenues for information to even help clinicians understand that this part, you know, that has been working for centuries, CBT has been the leading um, psychotherapy for, for the last few tens of years it doesn't work. It doesn't help, and you know, obviously, it's not a, a be all end all. If you have BPD and CBT has helped you, amazing, love that for you oh, for sure. Um, yeah. But overall, it is very possible that it is going to exasperate the very behaviors that we're trying to
1: to manage. At times, I found it very frustrating.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, because DBT. Comes from CBT. It takes elements of CBT. So Mm -hmm. it's not that CBT is awful. It's the basis of what does work. But for those things to work, you also need the element of acceptance. You also need the element of validation. You also need the element of, I'm listening to you. I can hear you. Let's find a way to help. Not, this is the way, this is what we're doing. If it's not working, you're the problem.
1: When people kind of, when I used to do live streams and people would come on and they were like, this thing isn't working for me and I don't understand why. Or like, I'm doing DBT and I don't understand why it's not working because I'm doing the work. And often I'm just like, well, what's what's happening around you? So that's a whole conversation on its own as well because
0: DBT isn't the be-all and end-all either. That's, mm-hmm. that's what's frustrating is um, we need to be a lot more open-minded with how we approach any kind of mental health condition or behavioural condition because even DBT, because it's from CBT and CBT is from, you know, where it comes from, it's all rooted in very westernised, white, privileged, um, male-centric rhetoric, all of it, all Mm. of psychiatry, all of psychology is based in upper-class, white, male-centric rhetoric. And Mm -hmm. even the DSM, like this is what I get a lot of flack for whenever I talk about it on my socials, is I'm not necessarily against the DSM, but I don't appreciate the DSM for where it is in the you know how high of a pedestal we put it on because essentially the further your responses are from a rich white man the more mentally ill you are essentially that's what the DSM Mm -hmm. says. so if you you know even with the new um, revision there's a section for grief where if you grieve too long you now can be Diagnosed with a grief disorder.
1: Yeah, isn't it like prolonged grief disorder? Isn't that weird?
0: And that that is so inherently frustrating that we consistently take human behavior, human responses, human emotions, and call it a disorder. Which, going back, is why when people tell me DBT doesn't work for me, that's valid. That is so valid. And that exactly what you said, what we then have to look further into is what is your environment? Are you currently in an abusive environment? Are you currently struggling financially? Are you currently struggling to fit into capitalism? Do you have a job? Do you have a support network? Do you have friends? If all of those answers are no, you don't have a disorder. You are struggling Mm -hmm. with life. And that's, that's perfectly valid and we can take then steps towards managing that instead of going, you know, I have a disorder and I have to follow
1: these modules of DBT and
0: it's going to fix
1: it. And it's not. Yeah. DBT is not going to fix your financial situation. It's not going to fix systemic oppression. No, not at all. And unless we, unless we bring
0: awareness to it, actually incorporate into into your therapy, into whatever you're coaching, into your um, community support, it's not going to it's not going to get better. We can we can manage it to an extent, but it is a wider problem that we need to start looking at.
1: You know, maybe you're not the problem. Maybe you're just surrounded by assholes. And also capitalism. Yeah. You know? That's pretty like,
0: much the biggest oppressive system is we are all stuck in capitalism. I actually learned a new word, thanks to TikTok, um, that another psychologist was looking into. And it's been around forever, but, and I might butcher it. Um, it starts with zoo. <laughs> and they I know what you're talking about. So, the yeah, so it's the thing where zoo animals can become like lethargic they start hitting their head against a wall they start walking in circles they start behaving completely out of character for their type of animal and it's because they're stuck in a zoo and it's it's got nothing it's got nothing to do with you know their nutrition or their behavior they don't have disorders they are stuck in a zoo and they can't be themselves they can't live out as themselves you know what if we have that what if we feel stuck in a zoo and it it brings out these behaviors because we feel so stuck and we don't we can't express ourselves we can't be ourselves
1: yeah if you're listening to this and dbt isn't working for you maybe it's because you're stuck in a zoo mm. think about it <laughs> think about it and honestly Just think about my-
0: because I don't want, I don't want, because very often in these conversations, the reason that it's hard to talk about on social media is I don't want people to then, <laughs> it's very easy to go, well, then what's the point? You know, like, oh, okay, well, if this doesn't work and I'm stuck in this, like, what's the point? The point is, and this is coming from someone who did not think she was going to make the age of 13. She did not think she was going to make the age of 16. I did not think I was going to make the age of 21. 25, 27, and now I am 34, okay? And I am not currently um, actively thinking about the ages that I'm not going to make. And what that means for me is at one point I didn't think that it was worth it. I didn't think, I, I also thought, well, what's the point? It's so difficult. Everything is so difficult. But once you reach a point where you can accept, where you can fully accept that there are going to be difficult aspects. There are going to be a lot of difficult aspects and some of us have to deal with a lot more difficult aspects than, than others. Once you can accept that and kind of move through it, it doesn't affect you as badly. It does allow you to then move through it into the things you do enjoy, into the things you can do. Because there are so many things, there are so many things, good things out there. If you are listening and you are th- hearing and, and you are stuck in an oppressive system or environment, know that it, that it isn't forever. It really isn't. And that's important. That's an important aspect that I just wanna highlight. <laughs>
1: There's a level of radical acceptance we need to practice. Yes,
0: 100% the hardest and most important skill that I can ever talk about is radical acceptance and that's for everyone it's not even just people who struggle with pds I talk about this to you know just my friends in general um a big one that I find very common and very funny is road rage so the amount of my friends who just they get so violently angry when someone does something on the road and it's so like since practicing like radical acceptance and 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 being able to just take things as they come it's baffling to me to see something so small cause such a reaction in someone and there's nothing they can do about it it's not like it affects them so minimally physically and yet it causes this huge rage response and i just i find it very interesting and and through that, I I then go into my steel to be like, hey, we can accept things <laughs> that we don't have control yeah. over.
1: Yeah, you can just drive and be like, well, that just happened, all right.
0: 100%, and I'm not saying you can't be mad. Like, sometimes it is frustrating. It is, like, I am gonna be late now, or I did nearly, this guy person nearly made me cause an accident. That's frustrating, but then it ends. And then the rest of the day, is not affected
1: yeah you're good now you're good no now one nothing, no, no one do. died
0: nothing happened your car's fine you can be frustrated for sure but their level the level of frustration the level of rage that comes through incredible
1: so considering what we've talked about so far we've talked about how a lot of our our struggles don't need to be pathologized and how a lot of people who don't have BPD also can have moments of lack of emotional regulation. And I want to talk a bit more about stigma that we face as people with BPD. Have you, like when you threw the chair, for example, did you face stigma directly after that? Are there moments in your life even after that where you faced a lot of prejudice from mental health professionals. Oh, all the time. Uh that's probably
0: the, I want to use the word funny, but it's not funny. Ha ha.
1: Yeah, it's funny, weird.
0: It's funny, weird. Um, is the fact that the stigma of BPD comes from clinicians, that they, they created the stigma and perpetuate the stigma. The idea that, you know, people with with PDs in general, cluster B is the most stigmatized of of the, the mental health conditions. The reason for that is, like I mentioned, if you're going to be treating a cancer patient with insulin and they consistently don't get better, you get frustrated and you get to a point where you go, Well, I don't want to work with cancer patients anymore because it doesn't work. Like none of it works. And that's 100% where the stigma comes from is for the last how many years they have used methods that are not working, creating these, these behaviors in these, these clients, these patients, these people, and then going, well, they're helpless. No one can help them. They, I don't want to work with them anymore. It's like, yeah, because you're not, you're not using the right medicine to help. And essentially, like it's, it's all interconnected. When you study to become a psychologist or a mental health worker or anything, if you study psychology um, to a master's level, you essentially train to become a CBT therapist, a, a CBT mm-hmm. psychologist, counsellor, whatever. Um, that's, that is essentially what they, they train you. At no point during my degree was I taught um, trauma work at no point during my degree was I taught like intersectionality. At no point was I taught to look outside the box. You know, it's it's genuinely just rehashing of the same ideas over and over and over, which is, you know, a a, a big part why newer mental health workers, like I can't call myself a psychologist. I'm not a registered psychologist. I'm a therapist for a reason because I don't, I, my values do not align with the psychology industry. I, I don't believe all of the things that we are said to have to do in these situations. It doesn't allow for nuance. It doesn't allow for um, seeing the client as a whole holistic person. And so if you, if you train to become, if you, if you study to become a psychologist, you become a CBT therapist. You become a CBT psychologist. So what that means is CBT works really well for short-term problems. It is a wonderful therapy if you have lost your job, if you're going through a breakup, if you're going through um, a divorce, if you're going through grief, if you're going through a loss of something, something that is not chronic something that is in the now, something that is happening now, I need to change my thoughts about it, I need to move through it, CBT is wonderful for that. So essentially a lot of psychologists will get to that point and stay at that point because having to have to work with PDs or anything more than that requires you to do extra work, requires you to go out on your own volition, and go and do DBT certification, and go and do trauma therapy certification, and go and do, you know, any kind of beyond your degree research. And that takes money, and that takes time, and that takes effort. And so if you already have a client base, why would you do that? Why would you want to do that? So that is a big, I guess, problem in the industry, why we are facing I guess, such a need for more help because there is help available, but it's not the right medicine, okay? It's not necessarily going to be all that helpful. Thanks to, I guess, not just social media, but just the internet in general, the idea of of having a collection of information, of real-world experiences, lived experiences, being able to help clinicians you know connected to the science connected to the research connected expand the research expand the science to be able to help more people i think is is amazing is incredible is going to help future generations but currently there is still very much a lack and this idea that pds can't be helped pds are not responding to cbt pds are the worst patients are the worst clients
1: So what I'm hearing is because there's this lack of accessible education for these mental health care providers to treat specifically things that help personality disorders, that lack of accessibility there is a big, like, perpetuator of stigma against our disorder. Yes. That sucks. I hate that. It does. It does. I hate that a lot. And that's why,
0: you know, as as bad as like the misinformation on TikTok or whatever it is, it's helpful. It is so helpful to get this information out there, not just to people with BPD, but to clinicians, but to people in the industry who have up to this point thought BPD clients are the worst. And it's it's funny because. I only have BPD clients. Those are my only clients. Well, not just BPD. I have PD clients. All of my clients are PD. I don't have clients that don't have PD. And I cannot for a second say that they are awful or they're the worst or I don't work with them. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. You, if you go into this field to have a, a best and worst type of client, that's not why you're doing this.
1: That's not why you're doing this. So do you find that having BPD, like it helps you treat other patients with similar disorders?
0: 110%, which is, you know, I get I get a lot of messages and DMs saying that, you know, they've got BPD or people have BPD and they've wanted to be a therapist or a psychologist or a counselor, and they didn't think that they were able to do it. I want everyone who has an interest in helping people, who have an interest in psychology, in mental health, to really pursue it if you have a mental health condition because you are able to help people better than anyone else can. 100% if, you know, if I don't have something, if I've never been experienced in something it doesn't mean that you can't necessarily help but my my knowledge is lacking my knowledge is as far as other people's experience that i have interpreted through textbook that's as far as my knowledge goes if you have internal knowledge and you don't even have to have the exact same experience because bpd you know has 256 different ways of of showing up but you can have the the empathy that someone who hasn't experienced it with your with your client you can have that empathy you can have it more so than someone who has not experienced it or has no idea of the depth of the the pain of the the emotional turmoil because I can you know I can see someone say, you know, let's break it down. If I've never broken a bone before, I can see that it's painful. You are showing me that it's painful. I have no idea what that means. So, you know, if a textbook tells me that for a broken bone, you have to do this, I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to wrap it up and hope for the best. You telling me, ouch, I don't want to do that, it hurts. And me going, well, the textbook says I need to wrap it this way, so too bad. If you're a, a clinician and you've never experienced the intense emotions of BPD and in your textbook it says, you know, do these, do these things and they'll be okay and your client is coming to you and saying, I can't, I can't do this and you've never experienced that level of I can't and you're just going to keep going well just have you just try it
1: though have you tried breathing <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's okay <laughs> sorry
0: I, I i
1: i it's so
0: frustrating to me that meditation and breathing and healthy eating and all of that it frustrates me because those things work but it if put in a situation where they are not needed or if like you know like you call the crisis line and they go You know, have you tried breathing? That And then that ingrains in your head that this is stupid. But in actual fact, breathing does help. Breathing does help. Cold compressions do help. Meditation does help. Walking outside does help. Getting sun does help. But if you tell me that in that moment, I will bite your head off.
1: Yeah. Don't tell me in the middle of like an episode to just, have you tried breathing? (laughs) Get out of here. No, I have of not- What what do you love about treating people with PDs? Like not like besides the fact that you're helping people and doing what you love to do. Like for someone who has never treated somebody with a PD before and maybe does think that they're monsters.
0: I think it's genuinely the f- the quickness of turnaround once they realize that someone is listening. And that's what I tell clinicians in general, because I speak to clinicians who don't work with PDs about this quite a lot, um, is very often the biggest thing, the only thing we wanted in therapy is for you to hear us, for you to understand what i am going through that's it like the work can be done only once i understand someone's on my side that's it like that that is the biggest thing so for me the best thing is seeing someone who has been dealing with with these pains these these behaviors most of their life and then seeing change within a month, within two months, within three months and, and looking back and going, I would not have reacted this way a year ago. I would not have reacted this way six months ago. And just, it's, it's so, it's so incredible. It is so genuinely incredible. And I guess it falls under helping people, but to just see that, to have that person actually be able to take control of, of their life, of their emotions
1: incredible it sounds like you're not even doing it for them you just you just took a flashlight and just shined it on the path they need to go on that is exact and that's that's the thing it's like
0: and i guess why i like skills-based therapy um because there's different therapies for different ailments and and things like i said Mm -hmm. cbt works for some things but like i have something that works you know a lot of the time obviously not all the time but I can give you these things and I can go look just try and have them try and have it work and have them go oh my god like this is this is what's been missing this is what I've been looking for I don't want to work with someone for for years that's not my that's not what I'm trying to do here I don't want to be a crutch I don't want you to lean on me. I want to show you this is what you can do. Here are the tools and then go and then use those tools and then the more you practice them, the more they work. If you stop practicing them or stop paying attention to them, it it does. You do slide back. Even I slide back. I've been doing I've been working on this for 15 years actively. And I I know when I'm I've stopped doing you know, checks in, checking in, or or meditating, or being aware of my surroundings, of my emotions, of the people. So it is. It's important to understand it's a skill
1: like any other that you have to practice. That's going to help you. Recovery isn't linear, and um, you know, I've I've relapsed. I did DBT, and then circumstances change, and things happen, and I slipped up. I needed help. And I I wasn't coping and I wasn't practicing my skills. And, you know, and I struggled with a lot of guilt and shame about it for a while, but it's, you know, it's okay to slip up. A big thing with that,
0: and again, I get flack for this, is exactly what you just said as well, or how you just said it, is I relapsed. I, you know, healing isn't linear. The guilt and shame comes from the fact that you think that there is an end goal, that you think that there is some person that you are going to become and it's all going to be okay. And if you don't do everything perfectly, I'm not going to reach that. And that that's a lot of pressure. That is so much pressure on yourself to perform correctly because – if you see yourself as disordered, if you see yourself as sick, it is going to be more difficult for you to accept yourself and your behaviours. I don't like seeing it as a disorder because it's just, it's human emotions. You're having human emotions. You're having human responses. Yeah, our responses are often bigger than they need to be, or more intense than they need to be. That doesn't make you sick or disordered. That is a response you have learned from somewhere. That is still a human response. That is not some alien thing that we have. It's not a germ. It's not a foreign body. It's a human emotion. That is a huge step in just managing. Because You have to accept that those those responses, they're still you. They're still a part of completely who you are. And even though you have those responses, even though they might be too big and they might hurt people, they might hurt you, does not mean that you don't deserve love, does not mean that you are somehow a bad human being. The, The longer that takes for you to accept yourself completely, the longer it's going to take you to be able to manage those responses because essentially you're stepping away from them. Oh, that's not me. I'm not like that. I'm not that person. But you are and, and it is you and it is your responses. And so that's, I guess, just a very important thing, at least the way I work. Obviously, if it doesn't work for you, that's completely fine. But because a lot of people, they find comfort in in calling themselves disordered. A lot of people find it comfort in in seeing themselves as sick and being able to heal. But essentially if you if you see yourself as as this project, then of course you're not going to enjoy your life. Of course you're not going to be seeing all of the good because you're broken. So of course you're not going to be enjoying your life because you you have this vision of this person you're supposed to be. And only then, once I'm this, then I can be happy. Then I can have a relationship. Then I'm going to experience life. No, you get to experience life right now. And right now, and, and during that, doing that, you can build your skills. You can work on your managing your emotions. That's perfect. But you're not sick. You're not disordered. You're not this project that constantly has to be worked on.
1: I felt like at the beginning of my kind of like like when I was first diagnosed, I had fallen into this recovery fallacy. That's what it is. It's a fallacy. I am only recovered or I am only whole or I am only not disordered mm. when I never feel uncomfortable emotions ever mm-hmm. again. And that's just not real.
0: And that, that's a huge, it is a very common um thought process to have it is a very common thought process to have so that's a big thing that we work on you know when at least with my clients that we manage is what I let them know is what essentially you're never going to reach a point where you're not going to react you're never going to reach a point where you're not going to be sad or uncomfortable or icky or um, feel these deep emotions that's not what we're trying to do We're not trying to get you to be the stoic robot. That's, that's the furthest away that I'm trying to get you at. What I'm trying to get you at is to accept that part of yourself, to really understand that this is who I am. I do react very strongly to things. That is who I am as a person. Through accepting that again, we can remove the, the hurtful parts of those behaviors. So, you responding big to something your partner has done is not a negative. You hurting yourself or your partner during that response is what we're trying to remove. Okay. And by having this idea that only when I am the perfect partner, only when I am the perfect human, only when I respond perfectly to every certain situation, then Am I good enough? Then I, then I am like the rest. Then I am quote unquote normal. And that is a dangerous, dangerous mindset to have.
1: It's like you're depriving yourself of fulfilling relationships. 100%. Because you're chasing after the unattainable within yourself.
0: And to me, that sounds horrific as a human being to want to
1: emulate this emotionless robot. That's so sad, mm, right? Because when you don't have any emotions, you also don't have joy. You don't have joy, and that's that's one hundred percent, you know, a big
0: thing that we try and get through to people is emotions are not the enemy. Sadness is not a negative. I hate the word negative emotions. I hate when people go.
1: Mm-mm, no, it it assigns morality to them. Uh,
0: there is no negative. It is just an emotion. It's painful, hundred yeah. percent. Pain is not a negative. Pain, and it's so cliche. Pain is a it's fine. <laughs> pain is a um a, a something to show that you're alive. Okay, you're alive. You get to feel pain. You get to experience pain. That's not a negative. I get to be sad. Oh my god, I get to be sad. I have apparently experienced so much joy that I get, now get to experience sadness. Because if you didn't experience joy you wouldn't experience sadness. If nothing made you so happy that losing it made you sad, then you didn't experience happiness. So being able to, I I get to be sad. I get to be sad. That's, that is incredible. I experienced something so good that is now apparently no longer in my life that I get to be sad.
1: Amazing, incredible. That is an amazing way to express gratitude. Mm, Huge, true. I like that. Yeah, didn't even think that. Yeah. I could honestly talk to you for a whole other like hour and another hour and another hour. You know, I want to bring it back to that message that you have um, that you say on your TikTok. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are not a monster. Where can people find you on socials to be reminded oh, yeah. of this message?
0: So um, currently I am on Instagram. So it's just Um And I'm on TikTok, um, where a lot of people who probably follow you probably have seen my stuff as well. Um, and that's putting underscore the underscore B underscore in underscore BPD. Where else? I've, I've got a YouTube channel. Um, it's BBPD123, I think. If you want to follow me on there, I am getting back to regularly posting on social media but tiktok is punishing me for not consistently posting
1: at the moment same mm. well bianca thank you so much for meeting with me today it has been an absolute pleasure yeah thank you for having me this is really fun i'm just so glad to have met you yeah <laughs> me you too know? um i just really appreciate it so yeah have a good rest of your day and we'll chat we'll chat again soon Chat soon. Thank you for having me. See ya. We'll see you later. Love Bianca. She's amazing. What a nice lady. In the next episode, we're going to talk to Andy, a licensed social worker who studies the complex intersection between anti fatness, food insecurity, and disordered eating. And we're going to peel back a bunch of layers there and dive into how there are things out there other than just body image issues. That can be contributing to eating disorders. Thanks for listening. Peace out. Quiet, not silent. We can create a perfect world in our heads.